Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. In this episode, Martin and Jaw had chat with doctors Jen and Ilya Murtarzashvili from the University of Pittsburgh Center for Governance and Markets and dive into the details of their new book, Towards the Political Economy of the Commons, Simple Rules for Sustainability. In the conversation, they cover the basics of what a commons is, what polycentricism is, and how property regimes and governmental institutions shape contexts and outcomes for commons-based governments. We hope you enjoy. Jen, Ilya, I want to thank you both for making the time to chat with us today. Welcome. It's great to be here. Yes, I think like, I'll and I'll kind of just direct from you, I'll be like Ilya or Jen and We'll take it from there, but would love to hear whichever one of you would like to start. Maybe Jen, t- tell us a little bit about your background and how did you folks arrive at, you know, this this book toward a political economy of the commons which we're going to discuss today. I mean, it's a very long story, but uh, I'm I'm someone who just loves to do field work, and I actually started off as a Peace Corps volunteer in Uzbekistan many years ago. And ended up working f- after I finished the Peace Corps um, for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. And I was doing democracy promotion work. And while I found it really exciting and interesting, I was very frustrated with it because I felt like a lot of the work that donors do that really tries to engage with people is very top-down and is really removed from some of the biggest problems people are facing that the that the tools that you know external actors have to 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 work with really are not suited very well for these kinds of environments and plus it the the way that donors often work really speaks to their problems and how they want to engage with people and the i always when i went back to graduate school afterwards i said i want to study problems that people in these societies really identify as important and that i could communicate these issues clearly to them rather than coming to something that like filling a gap in the literature like often when you come to a community nobody cares about your gap right who cares about your maybe we care about the gap but people don't care about that so this bottom-up perspective um and of course you know over the years i found a lot of issues with natural resources um that are very important in this book but my contribution to this is really sort of the bottom-up self-governance approach um and Ilya could speak to to the property rights and and the real focus on on natural resources please Ilya. yeah i mean i think when when we were thinking about um, you know, what do we mean by a political economy of the commons? We were thinking about, uh, you know, recognition that, you know, more effective resource governance depends on not only thinking about structures of property rights, but the diversity of property institutions that can be um, effective in, in managing valuable resources. Um, but also thinking in terms of commons as something that even if you have a, a substantial element of self-governance that you always have to engage with with the political realm you know and so our approach in that in that book tied together a lot of our our joint interests one is property rights um but not simply private property rights there's communal property rights and in some situations state ownership may be appropriate but we think a lot too in terms of polycentricity a political framework to enable 
self-governance. Um, you know, and so really pro property rights and, and, and polycentricity are, are, are two of the core themes when we think about um, a political economy of, of, of the commons. Um, and in terms of the book itself, you know, you'll see we have, you know, you have Jen and I, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in the, not in the United States, um, you know, looking at resource management issues. Jen has done a lot of work in Afghanistan. Our, our colleagues, Mayna and Raouf, they also bring a diversity of experience with cases um, from around the world. Mayna is an expert primarily on China, and Raouf does a lot of work uh, in Uzbekistan, um, but is also more of a generalist looking at kind of global patterns of resource management. Um, and that's really important, too, because our perspective on political economy is that you can't, you don't want to generalize from like what you know about one case. You want to try to bring people together who understand the diversity of ways um, commons are managed. And, and, and from all that, from that collaboration is where we, where we ended up with, uh, with the, with this particular book. So that's kind of how we, how we got there. Well, I think it's a, it's a really great combination of the two of you, or at least your approaches, because the, you know, we had, a couple episodes back in, and this really echoes your side jen as well we had um we had a person on uh, dr mel mckay i think she had she's an anthropologist from oxford who had spent about 10 years as well working in some of in some of the similar institutions that you have but on the but through the uk and that was basically her takeaway very much so just to say hey uh, we need to find a way to find problems that local actors actually value and then map those to the available capital that that wants to see particular outcomes and not really just go out the other way and say i have some money i would like to throw it at these outcomes that i want and then you get down there and all of a sudden people are like we don't we don't even value that that's not something we need <laughs> right and very common refrain that we've seen on the pod oh and sorry you're you're muted and then they wonder like how that money ends up in the hands of the Taliban, right? Exactly. <laughs> just like, oh. <laughs> right well, we just had this, you know, we had all this money here. We got to do something with it, right? Oh, it's funny. Funny enough, too, if the pod listeners of pod didn't know, I, I am from Afghanistan as well. So maybe we'll touch on we'll touch on some of that personal history as well. But I think so. Before we get too too much further, I do want to pull us back a bit and define some terms for folks. Some folks who've been with us for a while, we've had folks who've been working on projects in the commons, open source software, other things like that. But I would like, just since we have, we're lucky enough to have two experts on here. Can you folks define for us the commons? And then secondly, be great if you could also tell us a little bit about this notion of the tragedy of the commons. You start off with this in the book, so I think it's a great place to sort of kick off. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe I can start off with this and then Jen can can jump in here. but. Um, it, you know, by commons, we, we generally mean resources, shared resources uh, that can be used up, you know, and so I think that's really the kind of uh, non-technical way of thinking about it. But that's also, I think, the most appropriate um, way of starting out in terms of the more technical economic um, approach to thinking about the commons, you can think about uh, the extent to which resources are excludable or you can keep people from using them and also rival, which is the extent, another way of thinking about that, the, the resources are used up, you know, and, and, and commons from an economic perspective are, are resources that are um, 
non-excludable yet rival. And really what's most significant about that definition is that you have to create institutions in order to, to manage those, those resources. Now, you know, you mentioned the tragedy of the commons, and I think that's a really important starting point for thinking about the commons, because we oftentimes get into this realm of thinking about, well, what did Garrett Hardin think about the commons, you know, and I mean, I think one thing to emphasize, and this comes up in your podcast, is that Hardin was, <clears throat> Hardin basically assumed that if you don't have these coercive rules to tell people how to manage the commons, they're going to dissipate everything. Yeah. And his his implications were pretty extreme, right? When Hardin talked about mutual coercion, mutually agreed upon, he was talking about population control. And so we have to keep in mind that Hardin and the tragedy of the commons, which we throw around so often was, um, there was a, a number of implications that were uh, questionable at best, as well as kind of steeped in the kind of eugenic ideas about population control that were Definitely. so common, especially amongst even, um, you know, kind of these progressive uh, academics back then, um, you know. And so when we think about the tragedy of the commons, we always want to highlight that, um, <laughs> you know, we don't just want to go out and say, all right, Harden had everything right. Like we want to refocus things and think about the tragedy of the commons, this idea that resources are overused is really just a statement that in some situations you can do better when it comes to institutions for managing the commons. And there's no inevitability of the tragedy of the commons. Um, but at the same time, successful management is not guaranteed. There's work to be done, you know, and so, um, you know, so the commons is really about shared resources and it, it doesn't simply mean natural resources, as you know, We've done work on technology commons. Um, you know, you look at knowledge as a commons, governance of knowledge commons. Um, and when you think about things more broadly, what, what what you end up seeing, I think, is that like our capacity to manage commons is much more greater than what would be suggested is if then if you simply took Hardin's thesis and said, this is how the world is going to look, because it's not actually, I think, a very accurate uh, and one of the, in the, world. the big challenges with that approach is that it just completely eviscerates human agency, right? So that like people cannot, they need to be saved from the tragedy that they themselves create. And they need, you know, an, an external third party to come in and rescue them from this tra tragedy, right? I mean, it, it's it's a tragedy that yeah. is created by humans, and uh, it doesn't appreciate agency. It doesn't appreciate the creative ways that people can come together and solve problems, and it makes them very passive actors in their in the management of their own resources. Very passive. So I think that is the great tragedy to me. Isn't the commons is the way yeah. that the tragedy treats people. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing to point out, and I, this is where I'd love to get into some because you folks, you have the real life examples and experience. So it's, I think it's really enlightening for folks to see this is that when I even discuss this with people of my, um, you know, my personal networks, maybe LPs, other founders, you know, people who are, who, are, who have jobs and maybe they have jobs with bosses who always tell them what to do. It's like, you know, uh, they can only imagine a life with the centralized authority. 
And well, if we take that that central clearinghouse or authority away, well, of course, it's going to happen. So I, I'd like to even at this point turn to you and say, can you can you maybe for us draw out a modern example of this so people can see like what is the alternative? What is a what is a way that a that a commons has been managed successfully? If you know, let's say the listeners haven't engaged with uh, governing the commons from Ostrom or someone else, right? What, what is this? What does this actually look like in real life? I mean, you can even think about the biggest example of like where people think, all right, here's like a massive global collective action problem and we need centralized solutions, climate change, right? Um, and then just go out and ask yourself, like, you know, what's your local government doing? What are citizens doing? What are nonprofits doing, right? Um, what are people who are, you know, able to use technology, right? Blockchain communities, what are they doing? to deal with with the climate crisis. And you'll find that um, where there's been progress when dealing with uh, climate mitigation, but also climate change adaptation, much of that is occurring at the local level. Um, and that's actually, you know, one of Eleanor Ostrom's main points. And, you know, of course, Eleanor Ostrom was most or best known uh, for thinking about small communities that are managing resources like a you know like who has access to a a, a common forest or or a small fishery, uh, fishery. yeah um, but she also wrote on collective action to deal with climate change and she said look like it's actually the exact opposite of what Hardin was saying if you think that centralized solutions are the way to solve climate change problems like you're going to really be missing out because this has to occur through collective action at multiple scales. Um, and, and that too kind of gets into another kind of concept that we emphasize in a lot of our work, which is also one of Ostrom's considerations, which is that public goods, they're not provided by government. Typically, they're co-produced. They're, they're jointly supplied by governments, private actors, nonprofits, and citizens working together. And, and the, the way I would think about it is ask anyone, like when they're thinking about like when things happen with government, right? Was it simply that government came in to try to solve the problem or who's actually doing this, right? Um, you know, and so, yeah, Jen. So, you know, you, you, you ask for concrete examples, right? And so, you know, when I think of like a lot of the field work that I've done in, in you know, Afghanistan and beyond, yeah. um, when I think of, you know, Afghan examples of so many communities that were able to manage their pasture land effectively, and the source of the problem, like that really messed things up for them was the government. And this isn't to say that government is always bad, but here you were at, like, why did the state building effort in Afghanistan fail, right? I mean, because you ask people to give up these local institutions that they created that were uh, important and legitimate to them for like the false promise of this state. And everybody really wanted like this idealized, like democratic state that was going to do all this great stuff. But what they experienced was a horribly corrupt government. Right. So yeah. you're so at the local level, people actually became much more creative as the money for the state building effort increased. People at the local level were solving uh, water irrigation problems they are solving and, and they had the basis to do it because they'd been doing it for a long time property rights issues that we've talked about um you know so many communities that i visited uh where they develop schemes to pay some someone called amir ab amir mm -hmm. you know the person who governs the water and this person had to be 
uh, trusted by all these rival communities and had to come up with rules and that were administered in a very fair way. And this isn't easy to do, but people found a way to figure it out. And then you have the, the state come in and say, no, we're going to do it for you. And so you blow up these like indigenous arrangements that are very effective and legitimate. But I want to take, if we take it to a different extreme, um, when we think That's... about the state, the state itself, um, you know, there are these debates about, you know, I, th- I think what it comes down to fundamentally fundamentally is human agency. And what role does human agency play? And so this isn't like a clarion call to get rid of government. There's a a guy, he's a lawyer, his name, a guy, he's he's a really respected lawyer um, and writer named Philip K. Howard. And he writes uh, these books called like The Death of Common Sense. Um, He wrote another book called The Rule of Nobody. And I use a lot of these, his work in my classes because he discusses, he says, look, the left and the right are just debating like the size of government, big or small, no government. No one's talking about how to make it more effective and how to bring in human agency into it. Uh, Nobody wants to work for a boss that micromanages them. Right. People want to have human agency in their work, but like the way that government now works has really eliminated so much of that. And what we're trying to say here is that human agency really matters. It's it's a different perspective on how we view humans. We see them as creative, as capable, as smart, and with packed with information, and they know how to do things. And the challenge of public policy isn't making people do things a different way, it's channeling into that local information and making them, you know stakeholders in bigger processes. No, I, I love that because basically one of the things that you kick off with really early in the book, in the introductory chapters, you cover how uh, maybe this is a bit of a controversial statement for some people, but you basically make the point that government is often the cause of problems in commons management. So if you have, if you can imagine that sort of matrix that Ilya was pointing out around excludable, non-excludable, rivalrous, non-rivalrous, and you kind of fill it up with public goods, commons, private property, public property, and all that. Um, essentially, the, the you can draw a circle around some of that and say this area where the common sort of intersects around public goods and around um, open pool resources and things like that. Uh, often the government, like you said, Jen, is coming in and becoming the cause of a problem by intervening with local self-governing relations. So I think that's a really interesting thing because when we sort of, we might shift a little bit and now cover property regimes, because I think you folks have really interesting views on property regimes. Uh, some of the discourse on this, like uh, oh, maybe this this Philip, the Philip K. Howard person you were chatting about as well, another really wrote sort of way that people think about private property and public property is, you know, we zoom out to the state level and we're like, well, I'm currently doing this podcast from Stockholm, right? And this is like, this is a stronghold of, you know, the social democratic, like, let's let the government own a lot of stuff and do things for us, right? And I think it's really interesting what you pointed out to say that the, you know, public and private property regimes, also there's a, there's a covariance of them based on, you know, how long they've been around, how well their institutions function and what they're able to to sort of get done. And so I want to kick this over to you and say, maybe in some of your work, you know, what is this sort of complexity of various property regimes revealed about what we call the tragedy of the commons, right? Like this whole thing around essentially, you know, one great example, just to make it really clear for you, what I'm talking about is uh, this is, this is might be like a uh, finding that maybe isn't expected, but, you know, something you pointed out was that somewhat despotic or autocratic regimes can have better outcomes versus young democracies, right? So 
maybe getting into the what what have your insights around property regimes and uh, government institutions revealed? I'd be, I'd be I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I I think Jen will have a lot of examples from this too. But I mean, when we think about like you know democracy, like the the one thing that I always think about is like what are the limits with democracy? Why would we necessarily expect democratic politicians? Uh, uh, to care about the resources, um, you know, and, and one of the one, one of the people Jen and I both worked with at the University of Wisconsin, Dan Bromley, um, you know, who's like a, a legend in, um, you know, environmental and resource governance. Um, you know, he used to tell us, uh, you know, when we were taking classes, like in two decades ago, he would say, look, like, why would we expect people in a committee to care about the fish? You know, he was talking about um, his time when he spent on like uh, uh, the national fisheries committees in the United States. Um, and that's all in a democracy. You know, you're dealing with elected politicians, you're dealing with bureaucrats. And, um, you know, the idea that those that's going to translate into the public interest when it comes to uh, natural resource governance is just not a very realistic approach. And, you know, both Jen and I do a lot of work within the public choice tradition. Um, you know, public choice is oftentimes referred to as politics without romance. Um, and so when we're critical of democracy, like you, you know that our goal is to understand more effective commons governance. But then to other people, they'll say, but why are you critical of democracy? Democracy is just a good in and of itself. Um, right. But that's just not it's not a realistic notion of thinking about collective decision making. And, and so those kind of points that we raise democracies, you know, especially if they're young democracies, you're going to get a lot of dynamics that are going to be, you know, not not good for for the environment. Um, so rather than think about democracy, we think about polycentricity, right? Like you could have a democracy, a fledgling democracy, but do you actually have autonomy for local units so that the people who actually are using resources can figure out ways to better manage them? That's to us a much more interesting question. And that's well, oftentimes left I, out. I think this is maybe a point where Ilya and I might disagree just a little bit. I, I'm not as uh, skeptical of uh, democracy. I, I've, you know, issues with uh uh, I think that we oversell what democracy can do, I think, at the mm. end of the day, right? Mm. So democracy is a way of aggregating preferences. And uh, it is it has been so, I, I'm not surprised that we see like this democratic backs. I mean, this is sort of far afield from what we're talking about, but um, I think democracy is actually very important. And um, because it is the way that but people understand how their voices can be represented. Um, and even like in rural Afghanistan, if you take an extreme example, people understand what democracy is and they understood that they didn't have this. <laughs> they understand yeah. over the past 20 years that like they were not represented. Um, so I don't think we can discount it. I think democracy is extremely important, but we have to be very clear about what democracy can and cannot do. And it's like a Tom Waits song. You know, it's like democracy can shine your shoes. It can like <laughs> feed your family. Democracy delivers. Democracy delivers on any, democracies don't go to war with each other. Democracies don't, you know, democracies do this, economic growth, everything. No, democracies yeah. can do one thing and that's represent people. And it's been oversold, I mm. think, about how it can perform. Um especially you know countries that are weakly institutionalized that don't have bureaucratic institutions that align 
with democracy. I think, yeah. uh, you know, one of the reasons we see such backsliding is because you slap democratic institutions on really authoritarian societies and the yeah. pub bureaucracy hasn't changed at all. Yeah. But it's so it's very superficial. Um, so, of course, you know, people become frustrated with it. We shouldn't be surprised. Well, I want to hit you with the question, actually, since you you say it's not some of my favorite words with human agency, very much sums up a lot of my personal political beliefs, which I'm not going to bring into this now. But I will say that, you know, now that you're, you bring democracy to the core, we do use it as a monolith in some ways, right? Kind of, kind of like you pointed out, right? Where it's like, well, you know, we have democratic capitalism, which is often a term that I find is an oxymoron when combined, but like, you know, I'll get into that. But really how from your perspective on focusing on human agency one of the things that you folks really both kind of touched on is like yeah in in an autocratic government you might have the the, the ability to sort of better manage to certain outcomes but that's still you know an autocratic government um but you may not need to like you know when we look at it from the perspective of the west like well we just need to come in there and create institutions uh maybe if you look at post post post-soviet russia we just need to privatize stuff and then that that's going to lead to better outcomes because look at how we've done it here. But I wanted to ask you a very specific question on this, actually. Um, you know, commons need not be privatized, as you've kind of covered in the book. If a community can define rights and kind of maybe go through the IAD framework, the institutional analysis and design framework of Ostrom or whatever you prefer, public choice theory, however you want to do it. Um, how can we how can some of these places create the space for communities to define these rights? Right. Like what are. What are some examples where you can actually point to and say like, hey, look, instead of coming in here like the Afghan government did and saying destroying a, a commonly held practice for water irrigation, assigning it to the Ministry of Water, right? What is the, how can we sort of work to create space for communities to do these things and even point to real world examples and say, look, you bureaucrats, before you do that, do this. So I'll give you one big example that's in the news, right? I'll talk about Ukraine. Um, and, it, you know, contrasting those two cases is really important. And this isn't specifically about, you know, natural resource management. It's about governance writ large. Um, after the Maidan revolution of 2014 in Ukraine, uh, the government moved towards, like, some pretty radical policy reforms. Some of this was aimed at joining the European Union, like because that whole revolt was about Russia not wanting the sorry the the government the previous government um, uh, didn't want to join the European Union and vetoed uh, instead moved to join the Eurasian Economic Union, which is Russia's EU. And so that's actually one of the ma major sparks of that revolt. And so afterwards, there's a real push to reform institutions in the hopes of joining the EU, but also with the understanding that like they can't screw it up again. Like this is their one shot they have to like really radically shake things up. So what they did is they engaged in a kind of radical decentralization. And what that decentralization did, it was really unique in the way that they did it. They created these local units called hromadas. And hromadas, it's based on a you know, Ukrainian you know, custom, um, but these were all new units. They were not based on existing units. They asked communities to self-amalgamate, to come together together and to create new subnational units. So one of the interesting things about that is that you were able to get beyond a lot of like the old patronage networks and the by like completely blowing everything up and starting afresh, you gave people a new forum and you got rid of a lot of old interests. You brought people together on new levels. 
fast forward. Uh, so this brought like uh, 60% of local revenue was supported through this, um, huge investments in local infrastructure. And these things were very, very popular. And they had local elections for these local uh, mayors and city council men and women. Well, when Russia invades Ukraine, especially in like the eastern part of Ukraine, Russia's expecting the ethnic Russian population to sort of roll over, right? They kind of believe their own propaganda, like there's an ethnic thing and okay. So what happens is you see these huge revolts among the ethnic Russians against the Russian army because people are fighting for their mayors. They're fighting for their city council, people who they elected. Hmm. So that was their community leaders. And by decentralizing power in that kind of very radical way, it shifted identities away from these big national you know, issues of polarization down to local wow. things. And so you saw countless, I'll share with you, like countless videos. Um, the Russians would take the ethnic Russian mayor, put a hood over you know, his or her head. They murdered these people. This is actually something I see in huge numbers, whether it's Afghanistan or Pakistan or wherever there's insurgencies being fought. Governments often go after or invaders go after these local leaders because they are legitimate mm -hmm. to people. And that's what the Russians did in Ukraine. And that's actually what sparked. You saw, uh, you know, people were so surprised to see the Ukrainians fighting back. They weren't fighting back. They weren't fighting necessarily for Zelensky, who was really unpopular, actually, at the time. They were fighting for their local leaders, their communities, their towns, where they really felt like they had a stake at what was happening. Fascinating. And so that creating that space for communities to define their rights and how they want to be governed really gave them, it decentralized their institutions quite a bit, which actually dovetails into another point um, that I, that you folks, you, you folks make some claims that to some people might be a little bombastic, but I find really interesting. Uh, one of them was basically that you've kind of illustrated with this great example is that some of the um, looking at institutional centrality basically, as a, as a point of analysis and saying, uh, basically arriving at the claim that some of the best institutions tend to be decentralized. Now, that's not like, you're not saying everything should be decentralized, just we've had some people come on here, we've had, you know, some folks who are you know, decentralization maximalists, there are people who are sort of in the middle, but I'd love to dig into that a bit more, you know, kind of how, how, how did you, maybe, maybe Ilya or Jen, whichever one. There of you are no panaceas. There are yeah. no panaceas, right? That's, I think we might agree on that, Ilya. You go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I think um, we're, 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 we're not pushing one or the other, um, but in general, like what you, what you want to do is reconsider if you have centralized governance institutions, how, what are the costs of that? And and is it appropriate to decentralize? And I, I'll use another example. Jen used the great example from Ukraine. Um, in the United States, you know, you might not think of like the electromagnetic spectrum as a natural resource, but it's something that's subjected to congestion and interference and it has to be managed. And you might also not think of electromagnetic spectrum management in the United States as being highly centralized. You say, well, who who owns the spectrum in the United States? Well, technically, the FCC uh, has essentially uh, monocentric control over spectrum in the U.S. If you want to get licenses to broadcast uh, or transmit, um, you go to the FCC. If you're dealing with, uh, if you want to create quiet zones because you have radio astronomy, you have to deal with the FCC. Um, and so 
it's a, and you say, well, all right, why was that at one point beneficial? Well, in the 1920s, when everybody started to figure out how you could transmit over the airwaves, right? Um, there started to be problems with uh, uh, interference, right? And so what we're doing right now, having this Zoom, you know, with people in Sweden and the UK and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, you know, this all requires governance of of electromagnetic spectrum. And, and, and it's generally done pretty well because look at all that we're doing uh, over the internet, right? Um, but early on, you know, you had the, the initial commercial radio was coming out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania from the Westinghouse Tower in 1920. And, you know, they started, they started broadcasting and others started broadcasting and the FCC came in 1927. Between 1927 and 1933, they basically uh, said they would be using determine how spectrum would be managed for the public interest. And so, in a sense, it was like nationalization of spectrum. And they allocated for decades rights to spectrum to this valuable natural resource based on bureaucratic priorities or what they called beauty contests. So you had these committee hearings and you'd figure out who gets a license. Um, and so that's centralization. You have some benefits. And then you had in the 90s, you move towards markets for, for spectrum. And so you auction off all the spectrum. It's tremendously valuable, as, you, as we know. Um, so it's like, all right, well, that's the market-based approach. But where could you get more decentralization? And, and this is where our research uh, uh, on Indian country, Native American reservations comes in. You know, there's 500 plus federally recognized tribes and there's a movement for spectrum sovereignty where the tribes would have control over management of spectrum uh in ways that would allow them to assert a more meaningful sovereign control over how spectrum is used and managed on tribal lands you know and so that um when you think about the fcc as decent as centralized how can you decentralize? Well, you can look at native nations and say, look, why should they not have control if they're sovereign nations? Why should they not have control over spectrum? And it's something that one might not think about, but if you look at the FCC and just say, hey, it's market oriented, so therefore it must be efficient. Um, there's this whole question of, of tribal spectrum sovereignty that's kind of left out. Um, right. But this also involves the political question, right? Why would the FCC just give up authority? over spectrum, right? It's valuable. So, uh, you know, so there's this tension, you know, and so while there's some legislation proposing sovereignty for tribal nations, it, it has yet to be passed into law. Um, but that's an example where you could have decentralization for a valuable natural resource, in this case, spectrum, but there's oftentimes tremendous political challenges um, to doing so, you know, um, what would be the benefits? Well, one benefit is that you provide people who uh best know what they want to do uh in their community uh with more autonomy to manage something so you might get more innovation um but you still have to deal with those political challenges you know and so i think that's just one way of thinking like outside outside the box when it comes to um to management of resources you know that there are probably opportunities that will arise uh, uh through decentralized systems um, that would probably make people better off, but you oftentimes have to deal with uh, a political challenge, you know, because a lot of people do approach 
especially resources, natural resources or commons, with this idea that it has to be a, centra- a centralized solution will oftentimes work better. Um, and while sometimes it might be appropriate, uh, simply trying to impose that solution is, is oftentimes going to lead us astray when it comes to managing valuable natural resources. I just have a quick follow-up on that. So trying together the conversation from, from the beginning of the call, um, so things like mitigating climate change or biodiversity loss, is that more like regulating electromagnetic spectrum in the 20s or more like managing a response to an invasion in eastern Ukraine in 2023? Like what what should be the role of governments with significant resources and low borrowing costs? I mean, well, Jen can probably jump in here, but like my view is that with with climate change, the difference with the United States would say spectrum and like uh, with 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 climate change is that, um, you know, you do have uh, with with spectrum, the ability of a national government to impose control over the spectrum um, in ways that probably makes some sense at certain times, but then you still have to, the need for international coordination. So you do have um, like the the International Telecommunications Union serves as a, a coordinating role. Um, you know, with, with climate change mitigation, you're also going to have like some, um, a role of course for national level policymaking. But I think when it comes to mitigating climate change, there's much more of a need probably for decentralized solutions. And, and so if we were to look at like the kind of outcomes we see in general, spectrum management has has tended to be pretty centralized around national governments because they've been trying to essentially create a framework for using spectrum that uh, ties people together. Um, and and so that kind of it works, especially when you combine it with markets with um with climate change uh with with mitigation i think the centralized solutions like you have to get everybody like essentially participating in the regime so maintaining the more centralized solutions i think with climate change um works less well than when it comes to something like um like spectrum you know i think that uh the nature of and that goes too to like how these different uh uh, categories of resources imply different things for how we govern things. You know, I think, um, while I think polycentric solutions with spectrum and climate are both important, I think, um, probably with climate change, uh, polycentric approaches are, are even more pressing. Uh, but, um, but I think that's, these are good questions for like, I think how we think about like, uh future comparisons um because i hadn't thought as much about these two cases but i think it's it's good to kind of compare and contrast them then i don't know if you want to add anything there john i'll keep it back over to you but i've been thinking about this like like consistently as i've kind of heard this tension and also been thinking about just kind of the the scale with which things need to change on those particular issues. And maybe those two particular issues are kind of unique um, and challenges that have faced us. So I I think the scale, the scale issues at the heart of so much of this, right. Mm -hmm. And so you have to look at like, 
what is the problem you're solving? And number one, ask who's trying to solve that problem besides you, right? So a policymaker is going to look and say, we have to solve X, Y, and Z, but can't often see. I mean, this is where, you know, James Scott seeing like a state, right? A state wants to impose order, uh, rationalize uh, systems that really seem messy, And it's often that by doing so, you mess up the messiness and the messiness is actually quite legitimate. And to me, like the missing piece in much of this discussion, and even in Ostrom to some extent, is like the, I just think like the heart of this is legitimacy because I worry, I'm doing a lot of work on polarization and, you know, all of these kinds of tensions that we're seeing in our societies. And my concern about, about natural resource management and and looking at the you know the tragedy the so-called tragedy of the commons and polycentricity isn't so much of its efficiency um because we can have debates about that um my concerns because that's why i just don't think there's panaceas right people can say oh you decentralize everything to the local level and it'll be great and it'll be the best and yeah okay fine i really want to believe that but sometimes it may not be the case. Like we also have to open ourselves to be wrong about things, right? That's sort of the premise that I take. It's the lens that we have, I think, but it could also be incorrect. And if you can't ever be wrong about things and you're not asking really meaningful questions. So uh, at what scale? And to me, the polycentric part is most important because of legitimacy. And if you don't have legitimacy, in what you're doing, you're not going to have efficient outcomes regardless. If you don't have people's buy-in, this is where you're going to get corruption. This is where you're going to get people lack uh, uh, rule enforcement that doesn't, uh, doesn't stick, rules that nobody likes or cares about. This is how you foment unrest, quite frankly. And this is like Brexit, right? This isn't just like Afghanistan. If you start imposing rules that people don't feel that they're a part of and that even if it's very well-intentioned, you get backlash. And so that's where, to me, like the really, to, for, for polycentrism, it's real beauty is in the ways that it finds legitimacy at multiple levels. And you're getting people to work on issues together. <laughs> you know, it focuses on cooperation, local levels of cooperation, but cooperation across different scales. So uh, to me, that's a political problem, not necessarily an efficiency argument that a lot of economists will want to make. And uh, maybe, you know, Garrett Hardin wouldn't care if it's legitimate or not. He just hates the the stupid people and all their tragedies. Yeah, and that, that's what we derail, derail this conversation. Sorry, go ahead, Ilya. Oh. I was going to say, like, you know, Jen has been you know, pointing out like, you know, people having agency. And I mean, I think if you're just adding up people and saying just by having like more people, you get more, more problems, it kind of, you know, eliminates, uh, you know, anything human about, about people. And this sometimes comes up in economics too, when you say everybody maximizes, you know, where's the autonomy, where's the choice, you know, I mean, um, you know, if we hardwire people to be consumptive machines, um, you know, that, you know, what's the role for, for institutions? Where's the, the diversity of ideas that actually drive, drive progress, you know? And so we should have a framework that recognizes, you know, people are creative. They come up with new solutions and try to think about if, if there are opportunities to create political institutions that empower people 
to make decisions, you know, and that's really like a theme when it comes to what we're looking at. Sometimes you just don't have a centralized government. And so you want to figure out really the question is how do you make a polycentric system uh, work more effectively, you know, and that applies to many categories of natural resources. It applies to, you know, even with uh, management of electromagnetic spectrum, you know, how can you create a more meaningful polycentric uh system you know where where people at the local level have um autonomy and incentives to to innovate so well i think uh you you both we we've zigged and zagged to the book so far but i think we're now but martin has pushed us towards something i really very much wanted to touch on both of you which is through your chapter on uh just the global commons the environment ghg carbon uh greenhouse gases that kind of stuff so i think um legitimacy is an interesting point to take it from because i think it it might be the whole thing right whether you're in a in a functioning democracy functioning i'm making air quote fingers um or you know as you pointed out there's already there's disinformation there's all kinds of attacks on the the functioning relative or not of the systems to one that's really you know maybe you're in a economy that emits far less than the more developed economies and you're really more of a subject of climate catastrophe. I wanted to kind of kick it your way on the legitimacy side and say, um, you know, if you if you think about the kind of polycentric organizations that we need to have, uh, what what are some of the things that you think, you know, if you look if you look around at wealthy societies, they just from a numbers perspective, they are not making the investments they need to make at all, right? To really address what is happening with climate. Uh, I could just off the top of my head, I think the, the OECD countries have invested somewhere in the ballpark of 600 to 800 billion this year when all is said and done. And that's roughly a shortfall, depending on which climate economist you ask, of a couple trillion, right? So I'm curious to know if you, if you take that, if I threw that to you, Jen, and say, what problem are you trying to solve and who's trying to solve it you know maybe it's just that simple problem of the the numbers how do we get that thing to go up or maybe it's a maybe you want to reformulate it somehow but just to kick it back to you you've had this great take on how global commons you know uh are not being managed well with, with respect to sustainability and carbon emissions what is where do we start with that if we're going to tackle that problem Ilya, Mr. Natural Resources. <laughs> I'll, well, I'll go I'll go after. I yeah, have some Jen, thoughts, but yeah, I'm punting that to you. I mean, <laughs> it's look, a hard the, question. The way I think about it, you've basically, I think, done a great job highlighting that there's a global collective action problem, but there's also real major challenges with political incentives at the national level. And we're also talking here about mitigation, right? I mean, and a lot of people talk about mitigation. Um I actually really like the approach that uh, Terry Anderson has been putting out there recently. Um, you know, he's got this nice, this nice book, Adapt and Be Adept. And, and his general point is that, look, like this massive collective action problem when it comes to mitigation is significant. We have to try to deal with it. But what we can do in the short term uh, is really focus on adaptation. Um, to the problems with climate change. And if you want to think about, well, what's going to make people's lives better off, it's it's really making those investments to adapt 
to challenges with climate change. So if there are, we can identify all sorts of issues that are that are resulting from um, our failure to mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions, right? You know, you'd look at like more uh, crises, natural disasters, that sort of thing, um, you know? And, and so when you're thinking about that, you say, well, all right, what can we do, right? Um, we can figure out ways to better adapt to those challenges. And how are we going to adapt? Well, you could say, all right, the, you know, adapt through more centralized structures at the national level. But the fact is, you're going to be dealing with local communities, right? Like, is the federal government going to come in and help communities relocate who are located in the uh, in the United States, in the in in the the southeastern part yeah. of the United States, they're not right. Yeah, it's gonna that was be... that was a really good spot of your book, actually, where you're talking about how basically uh, the markets can provide uh, information to these communities about the economic benefits or costs of establishing their houses in a floodplain, right? But um, right. do you know one maybe one way to further refine the question for you is even to think of like uh, how would you how what institution are we missing or how do we sort of begin to guide an existing institution to helping people make that decision or is it the other way around i mean i think you have to start local and see you look from different examples where you've had successful like if we're talking about adaptation where have you seen successes um you know my colleague adam Krapel has written on uh native americans relocating different uh in different areas when they're confronted with uh, changes in the environment uh, in coastal communities in Louisiana. Um, that might be a way to think about how you can adapt to challenges like leveraging indi indigenous knowledge and, and indigenous uh, solutions to these, these, these challenges. Um, and I think the general lesson is to say, well, look at how the national agencies that are charged with responding to these problems, how well have they done? And you'll find that they have oftentimes not done all that well. Like our, our friend and colleague, Pete Leeson, has written a lot of papers about what happens when FEMA comes in to manage disasters. And the general conclusion is FEMA makes things worse. Yes. And people will say, well, how could you say that? It's FEMA. They're, they're trying to help people. Um, but these same people will say, look, who gets the who really helps when there's a crisis, who gets water back to people like they'll be like, it's Walmart. Right. Um, and the general idea is that, like, again, it goes back to talking about public goods being co-produced. Right. Helping people move to an area where they're more secure, more uh, resilient when it comes to environmental challenges. Is it in a sense a public good and it's co-produced? And, and if you're just thinking that the national governments are going to solve the problem, well, really they haven't. And so um, you want to think more about uh, what works locally. Not everything locally is going to work. And we're not talking about eliminating centralized solutions. Um, but like with the United States, oftentimes the federal agencies, like they tend to forget that it's it's a polycentric system. And they tend to not necessarily coordinate as well as they should with with uh, with local units. And I'm sure Jen can speak to the fact that in a lot of other contexts, it's a much more extreme version of that where you get even, centralization. Even here in the United States, like, you know, I'll just give you an example from our community here in Pittsburgh. Uh, you know, to answer, I think, the bigger question that you're asking about, you know, how can increase investments <clears throat> or how can you generate i would say the question isn't how much why isn't there more money 
I would say, how can you generate the collective action that's necessary to solve this problem? To yeah. me, that's the question, not about the resources. Absolutely. So I think the money and the resources and these all these national level plans actually alienate people from the broader problem. And they serve to politicize it in ways that I think are really unnecessary. So in the United States, like issues of climate change are seen as belonging to one political party. They're seen even in one faction of one political party, right? And to me, that's uh, if I were, if I really cared about these issues, instead of doubling down on my, in my community and my righteousness of having these answers, I would be trying to understand people who don't care about these issues or don't see things the way I do and trying to find some common ground with them. But, in, you know, it's easy to go on Twitter and moral virtue, your, you know, signal your deep passion for the climate. Hey, that does nothing. Why are, why are that does nothing. <laughs> to convince anybody of like your view or of the importance of these issues. So in our community, here, 100%. we have a, a, a city council woman who represents our neighborhood and her crusade in our city. That's, you know, been suffering urban. We live in the city of Pittsburgh. Okay. There's a lot of issues. Uh, our schools were shut down during COVID. So our, shoe, our schools were shut down, I think, longer than any school district in the country. We have huge issues of crime, increases of poverty, uh, real just social issues up the wazoo that have become, that were always there, but that have become amplified because of COVID. What is our city councilwoman's priority? She's an environmentalist. And what is she, what is her crusade? Ban plastic bags at the grocery store. And so, you know, this is what she talks about. This yeah. is how climate change becomes perceived at the local level through our local politicians. I'm not saying that there's merit in this, but when you don't have kids in school, when our schools are failing and you see a city councilwoman, you know, it just seems like privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, it doesn't seem like uh, it's wonderful that you can talk about plastic bags because you can feed your belly. Yep. And you want to charge a tax to people who are using plastic bags. Okay. A lot of European countries have done. But is this the big local issue of our day? But this is how climate change and I think climate activism really has worked itself out at the local level and manifests itself through like national movements rather than understanding you know, empathetically, how are, how are these climate issues affecting you? You may not even call it a climate issue. Um, but instead of taking those global issues and making them local, why not take the local issues and make them global? Hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Because at least that way, when you go back to your earlier point about legitimacy, it's very hard to be taken as a legitimate bureaucrat when you're running around saying the real problem, my friends, is plastic straws <laughs> instead of uh, your child's development over the last two and a half years of no school and what have you, right? So if you can't trust politicians to solve those issues that are so important here locally, how on earth are you going to trust them to solve climate change, right? I mean, yeah. this is, to me, there are such trust and legitimacy issues that we cannot seem to tackle. And that when you take something like climate change, which sadly has become an issue of polarization, it's like the stupid people don't understand what's in their own self-interest. They don't understand. And so you're going nowhere and you're yeah. only going to make things worse. No, that totally makes sense. I think like, you know, my, we, I'm specifically you know, running a firm that's focused on the climate space. So this is like a thing that's in my face all day. 
but and I'm thinking of it really much through the terms of how do we make more market-based approaches, information processing. But I think if I can summarize your both of your answers to this is very much you know, taking the learnings of what you have in, in the book, at least from how commons are managed, how do we actually begin to point from the bottom up to local things that actually point us in that direction together so that the new institutions can sort of manifest around that, right? It's not necessarily that we're missing a global depot or clearinghouse of <laughs> emissions that make it, that determines who can emit what. It's really more you know, hey, you maybe you're one of the the Ford F one fifty drivers. Did you know that uh, that the this clearing isn't going to exist, and deer hunting is going to be a difficult thing to do in about twenty years, <laughs> right? So, like maybe that's the climate issue. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one one last thing I kind of wanted to turn us towards as we wrap things up is, um, you know, y'all have really put together, in my opinion, like really the book that I always wanted to have when I like read Ostrom first, like 20, you know, I don't know, it's like actually 10 years ago, I was thinking to myself, where's, where's this book that actually really makes this, you know, obvious uh, with specific examples that really, really brings it through and is more than just the principles. Right. And so the last thing I kind of wanted to hit you with here is, um, you know, just to, just to drill home this sort of global commons problem is uh and to tie together private property regimes and everything you've kind of touched on is uh was recently at the economist impact summit and uh there was um there was a chief sustainability officer i'm not gonna i'm not gonna point out who she was exactly but um she worked she works at one of the world's largest banks and she this really if you get one thing out of this podcast i really want it to be kind of how you folks get at this problem which is she roughly said that it's, you know, the oceans, they're 80% of the world's carbon. They're a huge carbon sink. They're absolutely crucial. Managing them is absolutely crucial to better outcomes, environmental outcomes in the century. Uh, but banks and financial institutions have a hard time investing in oceans because of the provenance of the asset and anything that comes from it, basically, because the oceans are under largely under commons-based governance. And so, you know, whereas if a bank comes in and sponsors a nature-based solutions project that grows trees and sequesters carbon, it's very clear who owns that asset, any credits generated from it. Um, but in the ocean, basically, when we need people to act, they're not acting, right? They're basically saying, oh, well, I can't own it. I don't have the upside. Um, I need to kind of figure out how to do that. So to me, I actually, I asked this person a question. I said, hey, so should we actually be talking about private ownership of the oceans is that where you're going with this i kind of want to kick that over to you folks right? it touches on a lot of the topics you've talked about that problem of sort of just getting finance or just you know the economics right of a global resource we all depend on what is that in between space that that we're not exploring here well you know i, I think this is a great question we actually just had in in pittsburgh uh, our Center for Governance and Markets, we collaborated with the Mercatus Center uh, on a, a new thinking in global fisheries governance workshop. Um, and we were dealing with a lot of these questions. In particular, we were thinking about, well, you know, topics like, well, what is the relevant of Ostromian thinking with respect to the high seas, right? Because it's definitely not a small scale fishery. And there are lots of challenges with that, but in terms of like, and one of the things that we're thinking about is like, how do you maybe change like the structure of ownership, right? And so with global, with fisheries, like you have the high seas, which are, um, you know, for public 
use, right? It's hard to, to manage the high seas. But of course, you also have exclusive economic zones. Those are areas like close to the shores of nations that are the, the property regime is it's technically state ownership. And this actually goes into, you know, when we talk about privatization versus communal ownership versus state ownership, exclusive economic zones, the nations assert authority over that area and they can have private property regimes. They can have ITQ systems for managing fisheries. They can uh, declare the whole thing a marine protected area, right? And so you could extend out those exclusive economic zones, right? To, but it's not it's not privatizing things; it's establishing state ownership. And then what you could do is you could give off, you could you could allow the banks to invest how they want to invest. You could create an institutional regime to do that. Um, so I guess the question is like when you're thinking about the banks and what they're investing in, like what are they doing in those exclusive economic zones where it is not, it is there is no with. It is not open access. It's not terra nullius. It's the government's control that. And there are challenges, right? Like, you know, deep water fishing vessels come in and they mess with countries, you know, and, you know, they go in and they start taking the fish, right? So there's an enforcement problem. Um, but it's not one where the solution is necessarily to privatize or not privatize the oceans. The high seas, of course, too, you have different regimes to govern them. You know, the the UN Convention on Law of the Seas is just one of them, but you have all these treaties dealing with like trying to protect uh, the stuff that the fish eat, right? Like, you know, you got to protect kelp and all this other stuff and, you know, krill and, you know, so you have, you have regimes in place. So it's not an ungoverned space. So when someone comes in and says, look, like banks won't invest because there's no institutions or it's like chaos or anarchy. That's, I think, not accurate. So like what you want to think about is the banks will say whatever they want to say, but like the behavior of the banks might be the problem, not the institutional regime. And so you want to change the behavior of the banks. Um, and this comes up too, when you think about property rights, bank might say, all right, you don't have a legal title. I'm not going to give you a loan. Why not? If you can go up there and have a bunch of people from your community say, here, I own this, like, yeah. can I have a loan? They can do that without a legal title. And that actually comes up with like our work in Afghanistan where people are like, hey, everybody in the community knows this is my land. And here's my customary deed. And it has a thumbprint. If the bank says you need a legal title or the Afghan government says the only recognized property right is legal title, the problem is not with the person who owns the property because they know who owns it. It's with the banks, it's with the governments. And that kind of goes back to a theme we've been talking about. You know, it's, you know, what are what are the banks doing? What are the governments doing? And sometimes they're not making the right decisions. And when it comes to the world's oceans, like they could invest, there's nothing stopping them. But sometimes they just, it's easy to say, oh, it's the high seas are ungoverned. It's anarchy and, and we can't do anything. But I think that's not accurate. Like our book, what we talk a lot about. What about the situation where the government props up the market and that leads to stability, but that stability is eroding? Would you suggest that the government should essentially stop propping up the market in order to solve this? So an example would be the insurance market in Florida, right? They could essentially say, we no longer guarantee backing of any 30-year mortgage in Florida, right? So the government has essentially created the problem and created the stability within the market and could step away 
now as well. And maybe that's one role for federal governments is essentially to destroy the market in order to get people to, to change their behavior. I, I don't know. It's just like another yeah. twist on the framework that you guys are, are talking about right now, but it, except ex, the, the reverse situation where a framework has been created and that framework is now the problem. And where the government intervenes, it's really no longer the market, right? So, I mean, in that kind of sense, I don't, I wouldn't, I don't even think of that as like a market anymore. But Ilya, you can, you can. Uh, well, I mean, I guess the way we tend to approach things, like, you know, sometimes people say like the market is kind of this thing that comes about and it's spontaneous, but like, um, you know, our approach tends to be that the market is something it depends on having an effective, like it is a set of legal rules. And so you can't separate out the government from the market. So when we say market, we're not talking about absence of government, right? Um, you know, capital, you know, and this kind of goes back, like, if we talk about like our kind of broader tradition that like, you know, we were informed by the work of John Commons, who said, you know, who, who wrote, you know, in the 1920s, like a famous book, uh, the legal foundation institutions of capitalism or the legal foundations of capitalism. Um, capitalism functions well because it has an effective legal framework that actually goes back to Adam Smith too. Like, um, you know, you go to the kind of, you know, where Adam Smith thought there was a role for government, it is to create market institutions. Um, so sometimes the government, so the government is going to have presence in all of these situations. So it's really not a question of presence or absence of government, but exactly the, the, the question you asked, Martin, I think is a critical one. When the government comes in and creates a framework, right, when some of those aspects of the framework aren't working well, how do you figure out a way to kind of reduce the government's role? Um, to remove a government failure. And I would say it's easier to identify those things than to generate the political will to actually do that. Because once, and this comes up a lot when, you know, we study property rights, once you create a regime, even if it's a bad regime and inefficient, you create a constituency that has an incentive to keep that regime around after its use is no longer clear or when it's just a source of cost um you know and and so those kind of meta political challenges i think that's also where um you know where collective action comes in where publicizing these challenges comes in like civil society comes in um you know and jen mentions like uh you know people's differences and how do you overcome them how do you deal with this situation where someone who thinks if you're not recycling a bag you're basically like a bad person um, you know, and she didn't mention it, but she's got this great project on governing deep differences um, that looks at those types of issues, you know, at the local level, if people are having all these fights about begging groceries and how you beg them, and did you bring your, like, your own sack to carry out your groceries, like, um, you know, you got to ultimately, like, overcome these challenges so you can have constructive discussions about this and this certainly comes up with like things when you're thinking about like government's actions to try to mitigate risk with floods you know um you know there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be having strong opinions on things and the solutions are going to require people to get come together um and so you try to have to create you have to create a framework to do that um that's challenging like i mean we don't know how to do it in all situations but in terms of like um you know, what our research on commons has shown is that if you can create those types of institutions to bring people together, 
if you do think outside the box, if you do avoid thinking in terms of like panaceas, as Jen pointed out, you have a fighting chance. But oftentimes you cut off that fighting chance, you know, by thinking in terms of, you know, monocentric solutions are always good or, or like you reject that entirely and you just want to be like a crypto anarchist, which is not really re reasonable either in a lot of ways. You know, it has some good ideas, of course, but, um, you know, you, you swing the pendulum too far in one direction and you get problems is kind of the, the theme of our work. It just really strikes me that people are so passionate about climate issues, yet they cannot think clearly about people who disagree with them. And why? And what are the sources of those disagreements? To me, this is the greatest failure of the climate movement, right? Is that you make these people spokespeople for this movement. You know, you can think of activists or celebrities, Um and I think it's the way they speak to people who don't have the opportunity to, you know, shop all organic or, you know, it, it becomes a socioeconomic issue in so many places. And you're asking people to pay a lot for something that is far down the road where the issues in front of their face are failing, like the school issue, like I mentioned. So, you know, it's a time horizon issue. Of course, it makes perfect sense that people would invest in something that's down the road rather than the thing that's right in front of their face. And when they see politicians or activists value that much more than the crappy situation that they're in, it's really hard to take it seriously, to be honest, even if people, you know, so then you get your kids come home from school, they're all motivated and, and apocalyptic about what's going to happen tomorrow and where <laughs> mom and dad are worried about paying the bills, right? And if I were a climate change activist, I would be thinking very seriously and about those people who don't see it as a problem and finding a way to speak to them where they're not seen as idiots. And I, I, and I would just take this not just for this issue, but for so many other issues. The art of persuasion, our politicians across the, the spectrum have really lost. And it's to me, that is the greatest tragedy. And that what we're seeing on climate issues is just a manifestation of that. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Just to close this out, like the I think like I keep on coming back to the Florida real estate thing for a couple of reasons. I, I own a property in Florida, which is ridiculous because I focus on sustainability. But um, but that property continues to rise in value, right? And now you've got the this the many many insurers exiting, and so maybe the like what I'm trying to get at here is that there's a lot of people that are going to be harmed by this, um, by that that effectively, um have an interest in solving this because they have an incentive to solve it, but the government has created a challenge for solving or for, for essentially signaling from a price perspective that uh, the risk calculation has changed, right? And they've done this through this financial instrument. And so maybe the, the answer here is that the private market sees this risk and the private, the, the, you know, market is essentially saying, forget it, we're just out completely. Right. And so that's what you're starting to see with pretty much every insurer leaving, leaving Florida at this point. So, so maybe this solves itself. It just seems that in, in kind of the market failure, a lot of people that are going to get harmed that if you could communicate in the way that you're talking about, Jen, to help them understand that there is kind of this, uh, uh, self-interest 
in understanding these issues and, and working to solve them uh, uh, become so important over time. Yeah, and that's a good area example too. I mean, if, if you're dealing with people, you know, who have a home in Florida that might be subjected to different types of challenges, right? Like there's going to be local solutions and there's going to be markets, right? Like you can start a business, right? Putting these houses up on stilts and things like that. You know, I mean, you know, if there's opportunities to, to, to adapt, like you should see how you can strengthen those opportunities. And that would be in ways that are mutually beneficial. Like, you know, there's, um, you know, there's going to be those opportunities, but are you taking advantage or are you just focusing on government insurance? Right. That's not the only uh, way to, a, to a address these challenges, you know? And I mean, it, you know, just to follow up briefly on like, you know, you know, we're here in Pennsylvania, we had this massive like shale boom with shale gas and shale natural gas is better than coal for the environment when you burn it. I mean, there's pretty much a consensus on that, but then you get people who are like, you should have no fracking. You should just push like renewables. And for a lot of people, that's just not feasible. And we even have in New York, like they're banning like natural gas cooktops. And, um, you know, and if you oppose that, people are like, oh, like you hate the environment. But, you know, in a world of trade-offs, right, if you can have more natural gas and less coal, that's probably something that you should encourage. It's not renewable, right? Because Natural gas is, of course, a fossil fuel, um, but it can be something that can be beneficial for the environment, for for climate change, uh, you know, compared to the status quo of of how much we rely on coal, you know. And, um, you know, so I think that's like, you know, how we want to think about things. You know, And a lot of people able- who benefited from that shale gas boom were poor farmers landowners in rural areas outside of the cities and the people who were banning the fracking were city dwellers, uh, you know, in New York or in Pittsburgh where we don't have any shelter. And it just like, okay, you did your part. You banned fracking in the city. But you still um, warm your food up somehow. You warm your food up <laughs> and, you know, the, the long-term costs of the gas, right. Emissions versus the coal mining, um, and the benefits that that provided to the rural and other, you know, the other issues with fracking, I, I don't want to make the, like the fracking was this great thing, but like it's all, policy, public policy, as Ilya and I both teach always involves trade-offs. And mm-hmm. there, as we say, there's no panacea. So it's just understanding what are the choices between imperfect alternatives? There is no perfect solution. Everything has flaws. Everything is imperfect. I, I think that's almost as good a spot as any. <laughs> to bring it in and wrap it up actually we like to leave you we do like to leave you folks with the final word do let us know where can we follow you online where can we follow your work and also if you happen to know off the top of your head where can we where's the best place to get the book so that it results in some uh at least some meaningful royalties for you folks well you know academics don't make royalties on their books <laughs> So actually what we were thinking about is we, we at some point have to go to the publisher and see if we can uh, support maybe getting the book open access so it's available for free. So that's what we're going to be looking to. And so we can follow up with you if we can get it uh, open access because we support open access publishing if we're able to do that. So um, so we'll do that. And of course, like books are always, you know, uh, 
expensive if you buy them from the publisher, but that's part of our plan. Um, and Jen can boost our center, the Center for Governance and Markets at Pitt. You know, that's where we we do a lot of our work. If you like the research we're talking about here, Jen can maybe talk a little bit about our center. And we're on Twitter and uh, the other social media as well. So you can find us and hit us up if you've got questions. Uh, uh, we're at the University of Pittsburgh. Yeah, you can find us both on Twitter. I'm Jay Mertazashvili. I think he's I, Mertazashvili, and you get extra points if you can spell our last name. Um, but uh, the book is Toward a Political Economy of the Common Simple Rules for Sustainability, and that's from the New Thinking and Political Economy series. Um, and it's a hardcover book that's put out by Edward Elger Press. Um, and our co-authors on that, who we really want to give a shout out to, is uh, Mayna Tsai at the University of Connecticut and Rauhan Salahojayev, uh, who is based in uh, the fin- now, now he's at the Financial Institute in Tashkent, Uzbekistan. And uh, they've really worked uh, closely with us, put, producing a number of papers uh, that came before this book. So you can find it on Amazon. Um, I'm seeing some used copies as cheap as $15, which warms my heart. Um, but uh, our center is the Center for Governance and Markets. Uh, we're a research center at the University of Pittsburgh. And we like to say that our center sees the world from the bottom up. And that's our thing. We look at problems from the bottom. We do a lot of field work. We have a lens that's you know focused on how people understand problems, how they see problems, and understanding how policy interventions can help tap into those people, seeing people as resources rather than seeing them as constraints or obstacles, which is too often the case. Uh, it's because of this concern with legitimacy. Now, our focus on bottom-up solutions doesn't mean that they're always right. There's no panaceas. So we want to test things. We're out in the field. Uh, doing a lot of um, research on a number of different areas beyond beyond natural resource management. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for that. And thanks for making yourselves available to chat with us today. This has been awesome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. And keep up the great work. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe.